Okay, today must be September the 7th. No. Yes, okay. <laughs> I don't know. September the 7th, 2010. We'll prepare ourselves this evening in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and during that time we can name privately to God any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your word, the fact that you nor your word ever changes, and we can always depend upon it. That's so refreshing these days. So we pray that you will help us to recharge our spiritual batteries, that we will rightly divide the word so that we can stand firm for the faith. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I found a couple of articles just to mention a thing or two before I get started. Um, the first one, I guess, is uh, the title of it is Only 5.7 Million to Create One $45,000 a Year Job. That's what the government spends to get a job. This is by, who wrote this? Uh, Dr. Weiss. And this is from the New American, page 8. And this is, I think, the September issue. It says, uh, in, July, in July, Neil Barofsky, the Special Inspector General over the Troubled Asset Relief Program uh, that's called TARP, reported that the government bailout and stimulus spending has soared to an astronomical $3.7 trillion dollars. In his August 15th issue of Money and Markets, Dr. Martin D. Weiss noted that this gargantuan government spending has thus far generated a total of 654,000 jobs. So, says Dr. Weiss, let's do the math. Just divide 3.7 trillion spent by the 654,000 jobs that were created, and you'll see that every one of those new jobs cost a staggering $5.7 million to create. That's more, than, uh, that's more than an outrage. It's patently idiotic. The median income for a full-time American worker is only about 45000 At that rate, it will take nearly 126 years for each new job to generate paychecks worth $5.7 million. And with an average tax rate of 25%, it will take the government about 500 years to recoup the money from income taxes. But perhaps Dr. Weiss hasn't heard that the recovery is just around the corner. Of course, that's what we've been hearing from all the experts for the past two years, and those optimistic predictions have been proven wrong repeatedly. Just last week, Weiss noted, uh, quote, initial jobless claims were expected to drop. Instead, they surged a staggering 484,000 workers filed for unemployment benefits for the first time. So, I go to now the Israel My Glory magazine. 
and under Israel in the news uh, shows something about the lack of gratitude. It says police and Israel security agency agents recently tracked down and arrested members of Hamas terrorist cell responsible for a June shooting attack that killed a police officer. Two other police officers were wounded. Two weeks before the murder, one of the terrorists had received humanitarian aid in Israel's Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem, where he had accompanied his six-year-old daughter for surgery that removed a tumor from her, from her eye. The operation had been paid for in full by an Israeli charity foundation. And then he went out and murdered a cop, Israeli cop, that is. Well, such is the news. I haven't been giving you much news lately because it's pretty much the same. But I got these two magazines today, so I thought I'd share that with you. Okay, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we are at verse 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. I keep a spare Bible under my pulpit just in case I don't have mine. <laughs> it pays to think ahead. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. <clears throat> but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Now, where we ended last time was on that phrase. We had already covered about the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet salvation, and we are uh, going to pick it up today. You can look up here if you like on the notes. The hope of salvation. And we have our old friend Elpis. I just have it in red there so I can mark where I wanted to start. And it's Elpis, E-L-P-I-S. It's a noun accused of singular feminine. It means looking forward to something with confident expectation. I hope none of you use this word, though, if anyone ever asks you, are you going to heaven, and you say, I hope so. Don't ever do it around me if you don't want to see me throw a conniption. Because you, the way that people understand that word today is the same type of hope that you would have when you buy a lottery ticket. That's not very confident, and that's not what this word conveys. The word conveys confident expectation. So it would not be out of the realm of what is correct when someone asks you, are you going to heaven? You say, absolutely, no doubt about it. And then you would be conveying that same idea of hope. Since we are Christians of the day, we should put on the spiritual armor. We've already gone over that. Where we're really zeroing in on is this salvation, soteria in the Greek. Put on the hope of salvation. That's a noun, genitive, singular, feminine, and it means to be saved or delivered. 
The question is, saved from what? Some see the word salvation and automatically think it refers to being saved from the lake of fire. Their mind just defaults there. Salvation, saved, that's what they're thinking. The Bible says every time. And we've already seen that those two words are used a lot more when it's not referring to eternal salvation than when it is. And this is not one of those places that it is referring to the lake of fire, salvation. But that is foreign to the context of this chapter, which is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. You remember what the day of the Lord is? It's going to last a thousand and seven years. The first seven years are darkness. It's wrath. It's going to be the worst time that there ever has been on planet Earth. But at the end of that seven years, everything is going to change. It's going to go from the worst time to the best time because Jesus Christ is going to return and set up his millennial kingdom. That's going to make the difference. We have the confident anticipation of being delivered from the wrath of the tribulation, which is further proclaimed in the next verse. We'll get to that, but we're looking at salvation right now. And we have a quote from Schaefer Theological Seminary Journal, Volume 6, by Zane Hodges. And he says, Mr. Hodges says, quote, In addition to the breastplate... That would be a faith and love. Paul also exhorts the Thessalonians to put on the helmet, as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The phrase might well be rendered as a helmet, the expectation of deliverance or rescue. In contrasting his audience with the plight of the world, Paul has already said that the unregenerate shall not escape. 1 Thessalonians 5.3. What is it talking about? The first Thessalonians 5.3, who is not going to escape and what is it that they're not going to escape? The who is what? Unbelievers. The escape is the day of the Lord. That would be the tribulation, the, the judgment part of it. As sons of light, the Thessalonians did not share the nature of those around them, neither should they share in the world's unwatchful stupor, because instead, they are to watch and be sober. Watch and be sober. Having exhorted his audience to put on their spiritual armament, Paul picks up the familiar theme of assurance in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Now, that's where we're going. And it is about assurance. Thereby, he reaffirms the declaration made in Verse 10, this would be First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Although the world would bear inescapable calamities as believers, most certainly had the expectation of deliverance. Do you see what this whole book has been about so far? It's a, it's a book of contrast throughout, even in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. We were talking about being delivered from the wrath to come. Nowhere, not, not there nor here, does the context have anything to do with eternal salvation. That's not the context at all. Nor is it talking about immediate deliverance from the things that they were suffering. They were going to go through suffering just like we're going to go through suffering. But the suffering of First Thessalonians is a distinct, specific 
suffering, a time frame of suffering, of wrath that's called the day of the Lord. And what Paul is doing in chapter 5 is contrasting those who are of light and those who are darkness. Believers, unbelievers. Those who are sons of the day and those who are of the night. And now he's saying throughout this whole thing that we are not going to go through the wrath. And we'll be going through the wrath. <laughs> about that for clincher? We'll be going through the wrath that is on this verse in just a moment. So now we press on to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Very important verse here. Very important. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. For He has not destined... We've already gone over this. I'm not going to go over it. The exegesis is tithemi. It just... Uh, <clears throat> it means to be established or to bring into a specific place and so forth. For God has not destined us. Who is He talking to? He was talking to the Thessalonian believers who were church-age believers. And because He used the personal pronoun us, it means He's including Himself in this. God has not destined us for wrath. Now, here we are at the wrath. The word for wrath in the Greek is orge, O-R-G-E. It's a noun, accusative, singular, feminine. And it means anger, punishment, judgment. The context has nothing to do with eternal condemnation. It is speaking of the wrath of the day of the Lord that we see in verse 2. That's where it's introduced. It does not distinguish whether the wrath is from God or man, or a combination of both, it is referring to what is commonly known as the tribulation. This is the same wrath that's mentioned in the following verses. We'll look at those again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. This is what we were mentioning a while ago. We are to wait for His Son... From heaven. Jesus Christ is coming again from heaven. How many times is he going to come from heaven yet future? Two times, right? That's why there's so much confusion because people get the second advent and the rapture all discombobulated because they don't recognize they are two separate events. Don't take place at the same time. In fact, there's going to be at least seven years between the time of the rapture and the time of the second advent. So we are to wait for His Son from heaven who raised us, who he, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That is referring to the rapture. The time when He... We, we went into great, great detail in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. Remember that? That is the most detailed, specific description of what is going to happen to those who are still on the earth. Those who are still on the earth are going to be, remember the word I was using? Translated. You can say we've been raptured. Old Testament saints, I mean, excuse me, um, church age saints who are already dead are going to be resurrected. They're going to get a resurrection body. 
We're going to get a resurrection body, but it is more, it's more specific and right to say translated. Because we don't have a body that's dead, that's resurrected. It's translated. It is instantly changed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 15, around verse 50, it talks about in the twinkling of an eye. That's when that's going to happen. So we're going to be translated if we are still on planet earth when Jesus Christ returns. And that's what he's telling the Thessalonians, that we have to wait for his son from heaven who is going to rescue us from the wrath to come. Now, what if he, he didn't come during the time of the Thessalonians, did he? So what does that mean? It means that if he doesn't come in your lifetime, then you're going to die. And when he comes, you're going to be resurrected. You're going to receive a resurrection body an instant before those who are going to be translated receive their new bodies. But all of us are going to rise and meet Jesus Christ in the air in a new body that is not subject to pain, not suffering, no death, anything. And that just made me think of something. Um, when I was at Austin Bible Church last night, uh, Pastor Bob closed by saying, now, we're, we're, when we're going to meet here again in the dedication uh, week, he said, and I'll meet you here, there, or in the air. And they all pointed upward. And they they gave all the the visiting pastors who spoke a a little uh, gift sack thing there. And in it is a keychain that says, Here, there, or in the air. I thought that was pretty neat. Anyhow, that's what this is talking about. And what I like about that is so many people really don't have time to think about the rapture. In fact, a lot of people, if they were honest, would say, Uh... I don't think I can fit it in my day planner. I don't think I can pencil that one in. Well, of course, God is sovereign. He's going to come when He's ready to come. But we should be thinking about that. And I thought that was a good thing, that what they're, what they're doing and the way He ended. And I was looking at the people when He said that. He said, I will see you here, there. And when He pointed up in the air, everybody else was pointing also. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. That period of time is not just going to go in, uh, take place in the Mideast or any specific part of the globe. It's the whole world that is going to undergo this worst of all suffering and testing from the time of human history to the end, it will never be as bad as it will be then. You know, that's something that we don't talk about, but that might get the attention of someone. You might be talking to an unbeliever and say, hey, did you, did you know what's coming? You know what's on the horizon? You know what's yet future? It might not be that far off. He's probably going to think you're going to talk about geopolitical affairs, something like that, and you say, man, the worst time ever in the whole history of the earth is going to take place. Guaranteed. And see what he says. I mean, I'm just... I know Dusty would probably have something like that to say. He always had something uh, to, to get the ball rolling. And just listen to what they say, but now you can give them the good news. The good news is, that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
You will not go through that wrath guaranteed. Isn't that great to say? So it's going to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm going to give you a little bit of more information about this in a few moments. Those people are called earth dwellers. I mean, here we say those who dwell on the earth, but some translation, some translation call it earth dwellers. You know why I like that? Because we're going to be heaven dwellers while the earth dwellers are catching all types of hell. Earth dwellers. See, it's earth dwellers as opposed to those who are not on the earth, and we will not be. Then we looked at this. Remember, I, did I have y'all look? I think I had y'all look this up last time, didn't I? Nahum, one two. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if everybody found it. Uh, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He knows everything that is going on on planet Earth. And He is just building up the wrath to pour out. All of the genocide, all of the evil and wickedness that has been building up all this time is going to receive His righteous wrath when the day of the Lord begins. Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Now, some may take that as saying we're saved from the wrath of God in the sense of the lake of fire, but I think you could make a case about it being the day of the Lord as well. 2 Peter 2, 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And that's an unfortunate translation. It should be testing. Same word used up here in um, Revelation 3.10, the hour of testing. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, what is it? Is it in uh, verse... Three, and they will not escape. In fact, while they're saying peace and safety, wham, the day of the Lord is going to hit them on broadside and no one is going to escape. So this goes with Second Peter 2 Peter 2.9. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now this is from uh, an article Again, this was from uh, that Zane Hodges article, and he says the following. God did not appoint the Thessalonian believers or any other believers to experience any of the eschatological calamities of the tribulation. But to what is God appointing believers? The answer is salvation, deliverance, our rescue. This is in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that we just looked at. And through... Through whom does this deliverance come? It comes through the one who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we should live together with him. Or as 1.10 declares, it comes through God's Son from heaven. Now we're going to look at this part of this last verse here. But obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. I think I already said that, didn't I? Didn't I go over that? 
Okay, let's drop down to here. That was all by way of review. And when we get to the last phrase in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you're going to see something about review. Don't go there now. Don't look now. But I'm on solid ground to review in a lot of places in the Bible, even in the verse that we might get to tonight if I keep cracking. So, we have, so whether we are awake or asleep. Now, this is very important. These words here mean a lot. So, pay attention. Even though I get into the Greek a little bit, uh, you're going to see why it's important to sift these words down to their essence of what they mean. So whether we are awake. Now the word for awake is gregario, or gregorio, excuse me. It's a verb, present active subjunctive. This is the same word we used in verse 6, which means to be alert. It's used this way in Acts 20.31, 1 Corinthians 16.13, and 1 Peter 5.8. Gregorio, gregorio means to be spiritually awake in this context. It does not refer to being awake in the sense of being alive as opposed to being dead. You see, that's the way a lot of people take this. They say whether we are alive or whether we... I mean, whether we are awake or whether we are asleep. Now, if you go to 1 Thessalonians 4, remember it was it was making a distinction between those who are uh, awake and those who are asleep. And that was talking about those who are alive and those who are dead. Now, you have similar words here. In fact, you have the same words, but it doesn't mean the same thing as I'll show you. And you don't have the exact same words, by the way. Now, where it says are asleep, here you have the Greek word kathudo, K-A-T-H-E-U-D-O. It's a verb. And this also is a present active subjunctive. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. This is the same word used in verse 7, which means to be unalert or asleep. Look at verse 7. For those who are asleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Now that word there is kathudo, and it doesn't mean for those who are dead do their sleeping at night, does it? <laughs> uh, that wouldn't make sense. No, that is the word for and what, would, what did we say that it was talking about? It's talking about being spiritually asleep. And we have the exact same word here. So it means to be unalert or asleep spiritually. It is not contrasting living as opposed to dead believers. It is contrasting spiritually alert believers with those who are spiritually asleep. It is comparing watchful with unwatchful believers. Now, the one reason I'm emphatically stating that is because most commentaries, most pastors, most people try to say that this awake and asleep is for those who are dead and those who are alive. Because that's, they just go, if you go just to the English and you try to go to 1 Thessalonians 4, and that is the comparison, both those who are alive and those who have fallen asleep, the dead, that is the comparison. So they go here and they think it's talking about the same thing. But the exegesis will not allow it. The Greek words here tells us it cannot mean those who are dead. It's talking about those who are spiritually sleeping. In other words, they're not looking for Christ. They're not alert. Now here's another quote from that same 
article from Zane Hodges. Paul asserts in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 through 10, that the Thessalonians possess an immutable hope that is completely independent of whether they watch for him or not. The believer's destiny, he insists, is not the wrath of the day of the Lord. Contrarily, their destiny is deliverance from it so that they may live together with Christ. This destiny not only belongs to those Christians who are wide awake when he comes, but also to those who are sound asleep. In short, coming delivers all believers. Not just those who are, uh, have already died and those who are alive, but if the distinction is between dumb bunny believers that are asleep at the wheel and those who are alert and anticipating his coming. The realization that whether we wake or sleep refers to the contrasting states of watchfulness or unwatchfulness. It makes it plain that Paul is still thinking of eschatological woes, especially the advent of the day of the Lord, which brings an inescapable ruin to the unsaved and watchful, unwatchful world of verse 3. So at a critical high point of this contrast, of his contrast between the world and his readers, Paul affirms that his fellow Christians will escape, whether watching or not, and will live with their Lord. This is what the death of Christ, not their own spiritual alertness, has secured for them. Isn't that great news? Now some believers will will think it's too great. They think, well, if I don't have to be alert, I don't have to come to Bible class, I don't have to go to church, I don't have to study my Bible, I can be a dumb bunny believer, and if I'm alive when Christ comes, I'm gone. Well, you know, that's not the right attitude, because you know what comes next after the rapture of the church? Judgment seat of Christ, and these believers are going to stand before Jesus Christ. Their sins aren't going to be mentioned, but he's going to evaluate their life. He's going to evaluate your life and my life. Now, that should be a motivation. It is for me. I'm getting older. We're all getting older. I only have so much time. And I don't want to be the last person I want to stand before me, uh, that, I, that I would stand before and want to. Have you ever heard of the, the phrase being caught flat-footed? I don't want to be caught flat-footed then. I want to not dread it. I want to have confident expectation. That's what Paul had. Paul said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And there is laid up for me a crown, crown of righteousness, not only for me, but those, all those who look forward to Christ's coming. That's what I want to see. And we can make the decisions. And you're not earning it. It's just a motivation. Someone asked me, I was teaching the young people class, and someone um, came to me and they were asking about, I was talking about the, the rewards and decorations and how this should be a motivation for us. And they said, is it legitimate to do good things just so that you'll get rewards? And I said, Absolutely. That's why the Bible tells us about them. Now, once you become a mature believer, your motivation is 
more toward just you want to please the Lord. But I, I guess I'm not yet a complete mature believer because <laughs> knowing what the rewards are, that spurs me on also. It, it's a, it's, the main problem, people don't know what heaven's all about and they, they don't know. You can't be motivated by rewards if you don't even know what they are. Did I finish this? Did I just do this one? No, no, that's right. I hadn't done this one yet, have I? Okay. Uh, the flow of thought here is unified and logical so that wrath in verse 9, look at it in verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, refers to earlier in this passage the wrath of the day of the Lord in verses 1 through 3. That's where you have... Especially in verse 3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains on a woman with a child, and they will not escape. Now, he has something else. This is... I'm very fortunate because I have a wealth of resources to uh, be able to study with. This is one of the theological journals that I have in my computer. And I have 500 years of theological journals from all of the theological journals that have been uh, produced. And I can just put in, a, like I could put in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 and tell my computer I'm going to search all those journals for this particular verse. And I come up with a, a long list of things I can click on to reference these journals. That is a great asset, let me tell you, because these are the brilliant minds of 500 years that are writing articles on these particular issues. In this case, it was Zane Hodges. So he has some insights here I wanted to give you. He has a quote. He says, The majority interpretation mutes 1 Thessalonians 5.10's eschatological thrust. Let me tell you what he's saying there. What he's saying is most theologians, most pastors mute the eschatological thrust. What he means is they think that this is talking about whether you are alive or dead and it's doing away with the, when he says the eschatological thrust, he's talking about the day of the Lord coming. The verse means who died for us, <clears throat> excuse me, that whether we watch or fail to watch, we shall live together with him. This verse refutes the partial rapture theory and reinforces the blessed hope that all believers, spiritual or not, will be caught up to meet the Lord when He comes for His church. Have any of you heard of the partial rapture theory? Well, there are those out there that believe that when Jesus Christ comes back, if you're a believer that is in carnality, sorry, you're destined for the wrath. Just the ones that are doing right, those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and have been growing up. Those are the ones that are going to be raptured. The rest of them have to go through the tribulation. Aren't you glad that that's not so? But yeah, it's, see, it's all about grace. Uh, that would be a good lever, though, wouldn't it? I mean, <laughs> if I could stand up and tell you, hey, you listen to me. If you're carnal when Christ comes, you're going to go through it. And everybody says, better be good. But the only problem is that just erases grace and that's not what it's about. Yes? 
The what? Well, yeah, I don't want to get into that right now because that gets get, gets deep. Let me let me just say that the partial rapture is goes along with the pre wrath rapture and the uh, post uh, uh, millennial rapture. Um, all this we're gone before it begins. That all of us are going to be gone. And this verse, that's why I said these verses are so important. Whether you're awake. Are you're asleep, spirits, it doesn't matter, you're going. The only reason any of us are going anyway is because of G-R-A-C-E. None of us earn it or deserve it. What day that's going to be. Now he says, regarding the day of the Lord, it clearly differentiates believers from unbelievers. Living believers are not appointed to the wrath awaiting the unbelievers, but to the salvation this context stresses. Deliverance from the day of the Lord. Paul exhorts believers to watch for this deliverance, but watchful or not, their hope is certain. Now, we're exhorted. In fact, I just told you about a crown of righteousness that is going to be awarded for those who are looking forward for Christ's coming. And you go to believers today and say, what do you think about the rapture? The what? The rapture. What's that? And you think, do you go to church? Oh. What do you do when you go there? There are people, there are churches that don't even teach the rapture. And the reason is because, oh, it's controversial. And so, the people in that church know nothing about the rapture other than it's controversial. We will live together with Him. The word here is zao. Do you all see where we are here? We're in verse 10. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. That's where we're looking at this verse here. Zao is where we get the... comes from zoe, where we get the word zoology, which means life. Zoe means life. It's the aorist active subjunctive. It means to live, to have life. What time frame did Paul have in mind when he told the Thessalonians that they will live together with him? Certainly, they, as all believers know, will eventually live together with him, don't we? But Paul was being specific when he was connecting, we will live together with him here, with the so shall we ever be with the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. You see that? Now, you're not going to remember this, so I want you to circle this. Circle, we will live together with Him in your Bible and put out to the side, 1 Thess 4.17. And that's the very end of it. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10, and you're linking that. With 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Are you all ready for a question? I'm going to challenge you. We don't have much time left. I hope you're still thinking because I'm going to challenge you right now. I'll wait till you're through thinking. Uh, writing. I want you to be thinking. See how this is, this is... Both of these are encouragement. That's why it says... 
We will live together with him. And here we have, so shall we ever be with the Lord, meaning the same thing, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 17. I'll wait till y'all are through, but it's not going to be easy. Y'all got it? Okay, here's the question. This is a promise and an absolute certainty. In other words, the fact that we're going to live with him, the fact that we're for uh, what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's a promise, isn't it? Is that a certainty? It's absolute certainty, isn't it? Dogmatically, emphatically so. We're going to be with the Lord. I mean, that is the, that's part of the gospel. So this is a promise and absolute certainty. So why did Paul use the subjunctive mood, the mood of potential instead of the mood of reality? See, up here, both of these, we... He shall deliver us from the wrath so that we will live together with him. Here it is right here. Eris active subjunctive. Why? Because it was only a potential that he's coming in their lifetime. They're your subjunctive. I'll explain it here. The only logical answer is that Paul did not say Jesus would return during his lifetime, but he could return during his lifetime. You got that? It's the only possible explanation for a subjunctive mood there. Because we're talking about something absolutely, positively, emphatically, dogmatically certain. We are going to live with the Lord, and that's certain from the point that we believed in Jesus Christ. Is that not true? If that is not true, let's toss out our Bibles and let's go home and play tiddlywinks or whatever else you want to do because we're wasting our time here. This is an absolute fundamental of the Christian faith that we are going to live with the Lord. And yet he uses the subjunctive mood. Now, I know the subjunctive mood doesn't mean that much to you maybe, but when I was reading, I said, wow, subjunctive mood. So, he's saying that he, he's not saying that he would come, absolutely. He's saying that he could come during his lifetime. That's why the subjunctive move. What Paul is saying, we're going to live with Christ. And if Christ comes while we're still alive, we're going to be translated. We're going to receive a resurrection body. We're not going to go through the day of the Lord. But he uses a subjunctive mood to show that it's a potential at best. Can we say the same thing about us? Absolutely. And that's what I'm saying to you now. He could come before this class is through. But if not, we're still going to live with him, aren't we? Only instead of being translated, we'll be resurrected. If he wanted to reassure them concerning their eternal security, if that was the issue, eternal security, that's the wrath that he's going to deliver them from, he would have used the indicative mood, the mood of reality, right? If that's what his subject matter was, that he's saying, I'm going to deliver you, you're not going to go through the wrath to come, and he meant that talking about eternal salvation, not being eternally condemned, 
he would have had to use there the indicative mood because that is a certainty, right? But whether we're going to be uh, live with him or not, whether he's coming or not, see, we have it right here. We will live together with him in the sense of the context of this whole chapter has to do with being rescued from the day of the Lord. That is only a potential, and that's why he used the subjunctive mood. But if he was talking about eternal security, about that he would have to use the indicative mood, meaning the mood of reality. But these believers were way beyond needing reassurance of their eternal salvation. They needed to be reassured of the imminency of the rapture, deliverance, and that they would not have any part of the darkness of the day of the Lord. That's what they needed reassurance of, and that's what I'm reassuring you. That is a great reassurance, by the way. This is yet another indication. Now, I don't have time to go on to verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Do you know in the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what, is it, what does it say? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What is he saying here? You're reading in the English and the Greek, it's saying the exact same words. This is an encouragement. And that's what I'm doing is encouraging you. No matter what you hear, no matter what someone else may say, Jesus Christ is going to return. If we are alive on earth when he does, it doesn't matter whether you're spiritually awake or whether you're spiritually asleep. We're going to be out of here and he's going to deliver us from the wrath to come. And we'll be singing his praises for all eternity because of it. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is alive and powerful. We thank you for your promises that are bound by your own integrity and character. We thank you that we can have that elpis, confident expectation of Jesus Christ coming to rescue us from the wrath to come. We're so thankful that it doesn't depend upon us and none of us are going to be left behind. It all depends on who and what you are and for your phenomenal plan. So we pray that you will help us to live as sons of the day, sons of the light, and that we will be able to tell others that they need also to have that assurance that they will not go through that horrible day of the Lord, the, the wrath part. We thank you for this. Pray that you will challenge us to meditate upon these things and tell others, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.